Nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness. The ones who walk in light, light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is um, Tuesday, April the twenty sixth, two o one one. That's two thousand and eleven. There's no stopping this time, time, time. <laughs> I don't know whether to laugh or cry this week. Uh, I made a list of sixteen things that I felt we should know about. We should talk about, you know, with my feminist fist in the air. And then I gave up. Ah, I think I'll just listen uh, to the television this week and watch the British royals do their thing. The tourist industry is going to hit the jackpot on Friday. They have the super royal wedding. Um, William and Kate. It's called William and Kate. I think I haven't really looked very hard, but... Most of the people I know seem to think that they've got a 50-50 chance like anybody else. Uh, I can't help it. I just keep thinking of William's mom. You remember her. You remember Princess Diana, a child of 19. I remember that little face, that miserable child. Uh, uh, maybe she was 20 by the time they had the, the wedding ceremony with Charles there. Uh, I remember writing vicious little essays for a woman's newspaper about the, uh, what is it, the training that the the old queen mother gave Diana in order for her to become a proper, a proper uh, young woman. Gee, and I, I thought she was new agey, you see, but of course... Her new ageness just just meant that she was bulimic to to the point of um what is it serious illness mental illness uh I guess yes I remember Mama I think I will just just for the record I think we'll take one look back I couldn't find what I wrote uh or published in 1981 I found some things. Published in 1997, back when uh, back when Diana was killed in the car wreck, uh, many people thought that that was a plot. Anyway, I thought that the death of Lady Diana Spencer was an Elizabethan tragedy. Uh, we had a world stage for this one. I quoted Thomas Nash, the Elizabethan poet. Uh, let's see, he lived in 1567, right, uh, his wonderful poem, it says, Brightness falls from the air, 
Queens have died young and fair. The electronic media in the uh, 20th century, (laughs) well, that was the means to create global grief. We had uh, world mourning. Everyone felt that they knew, they knew all about what had happened to this woman, what her life meant. There were universal symbols. She was uh, iconic was instantaneous recognition of her tragedy. Of course, we see things not as they are, but as we are. I was talking to a friend about weeping over death the other day, and I said, of course, it's it's ourselves we weep for when there is a death. Um, Walt Whitman used to say, no thing can happen more beautiful than death. Anyway, there was a lot of partisan perception when they reported on Diana's death, that car crash in Paris. We still see pictures of that tunnel. Every reaction revealed the spectator more than the actual event. Uh, In the 1997 issue of The New Yorker, 15 September, Salman Rushdie writes here, quote, The pornography of Diana Spencer's death becomes apparent. She died in a sublimated sexual assault. Mm. I watched the television coverage all alone late at night. I played old English ballads from the plays of Shakespeare. In my journal, I set down lines from uh, Webster's Elizabethan Tragedy, The Duchess of Malfi, one of my favorites. Uh, Webster wrote, quote, Cover her face, mine eyes dazzle. She died young. Anyway, Among Diana Spencer's ancestors is the Elizabethan poet Edmund Spencer, born 1552, question mark, died 1599. His famous work is titled The Fairy Queen. It is beloved of English majors. It is said to be a lyric uh, evocation of the old religion, the really old, old, old religion, the ancient pagan magic, you know, the one before Celtic twilight, before the end of the old gods, Diana's mother and brother, are actually recent converts to Catholicism, that is, recent in the 90s. Uh, Now, that speaks volumes to my way of seeing the English with their Anglican angst as a thin veil over their ancient beliefs, those beliefs in the Catholic gods, the earth gods, nature gods. Also, in that issue, September of 97, that issue of the New Yorker, there is a rather clinical essay by the editor, Tina Brown. Tina Brown noted that Diana, quote, is almost wholly devoid of Irony. How could Charles have known that the demure Deb he married would turn out to harbor a cache of emotions 
out of Emily Bronte. Okay, yes, indeed. She got that one right, Tina Brown. Uh, uh, what a woman. I was watching her on one of those panel shows the other night. That's what I meant to be. I meant to be Tina Brown, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I was having too much fun. Anyway, Tina Brown describes Diana as having a quality of driven earnestness. Now, I'd call it, I would insist that uh, what she had was a strange human quality called innocence. Some people call Diana naive. I don't see her that way, although it's vital to remember I mean, she was a teenager when Charles proposed, you know, all her friends thought it was a delightful idea. Naivete is of the mind. Innocence is of the spirit, and she did have an innocent spirit. She believed in a lot of nonsense. I made a list of all the dismissive things that were said by the male pundits. Guys from William Sapphire to Christopher Hitchens. Even the loving things said by some of the men, uh, Clive James. Yes, he concludes that he has loved the world of women because he feared the world of men. Well, that's not a very comforting resolution, you know. His piece on Diana is called Requiem. It's in the same issue of The New Yorker, that September 97 issue. Uh, I've preserved mine. I have it in my file. Uh, it's an amazing issue. There's a cover with one of those buskers at the gates of the palace, you know, the ones with the big hats. And uh, it's a very macabre cover. The, the uh, soldier has a tear falling down his face. Uh, anyway, the women's community was more varied where I live, although there was a tendency to explain the depth of feeling caused by this sad event as grief for our general malaise, for the feeling that modern life is loveless, lacking in spiritual values, blah, blah, blah. I guess some of us uh, needed an angel then as now. I uh, remember on KPFA talking about the triple goddess, you know, that maiden mother crone story. I said that I thought Diana and uh, Mother Teresa, who had died uh, about the same time, I said they were in some celestial sphere now, planning a comeback. <laughs> Look around, let's see. Where do you see them reincarnating? The response was mixed. Um, some folks still have an either-or way of thinking about these things. I mean, they think either Diana was a fraud, or a feminist, or the worst half of both. Or they say she was not in the same league with Mother Teresa, because she still got her hair done and went <laughs> went to the gym. You know, it's no use pointing out that Mother Teresa had 50 years on Diana and that it takes a lot of rehearsal to become yourself. 
Once upon a time, let's see, it was 1981, August, when I wrote a satirical piece for the women's newspaper Plexus. I remember now. Some of my British friends loved it. Uh, it was a take on the wedding of Diana and Charles, and I predicted a fairy tale by the Brothers Grimm. A grim tale indeed. I was particularly snotty in my descriptions of the various older women, these stepmothers and stepsisters, you know. <laughs> their, their archetypes are in all the cautionary fairy tales. I felt they were collaborators in this virgin sacrifice. My views have softened with the years. Although I see the political picture in a much harsher light. I mean, Margaret Thatcher was the real mum, the one who gave the spankings. You remember, uh, there was an economic depression back in 81 as well. Uh, same as this week, right, as I watched Elizabeth II on television after Diana's death, uh, I winced. She was trying to say she was sorry without being so hypocritical as to say that she had loved her daughter-in-law. I felt her pain. Uh, actually, she did get the picture faster than her son Charles. Uh, Charles wanted to have the funeral at St. Paul's. Uh, Churchill's farewell was held there because he was not a royal, but the queen had better instincts. Um, she knew that the mother, the mother of the future king, mother of William and Harry, was blood royal. Uh, that's called mother right. No matter how many divorces, uh, she is still, uh, Diana is still the queen. Uh, it had to be Westminster Abbey. Once upon a time, tribal councils of elder women chose the kings and the chieftains of Britain. Uh, they were the source of power. These heathen Wicca inaugurated leaders over sacred stones. Ah, yes, that stone. <laughs> when I picked my name, I thought about that. Anyway, sacred stones were said to speak aloud to signify divine acceptance of each new ruler. <laughs> There's a hilarious uh, HBO show at the moment called Game of Thrones that's full of all this nonsense. It's a total fantasy, nothing to do with history, but I couldn't resist watching it last night. Anyway, there is still a stone that is part of the coronation of British monarchs. The ancient stone of Scone rests beneath the coronation throne in Westminster Abbey. When Elizabeth was crowned, she did not allow cameras to photograph the moment when the canopy... Uh, uh, let's see, I think the camera came in. She was under the canopy, but you didn't see her being anointed with the holy oil. I suppose her race memory told her that it was not... Uh, not for the masses. Anyway, let's see. Elizabeth is 84 now. I remember as a child, she was the age of my elder sister. I was the age of little Princess Margaret, now long gone. <laughs> Margaret had one drink too many, I think. Perhaps 
it was too much to expect uh, Elizabeth to empathize with Diana. Uh, there's almost as much a generation gap with Charles. Let's see, I think he was, was he eight years older than Diana. Anyway, he'd been around the block. Uh, we are all of us products of our own time, our own era. Sooner or later, we are pickled in the values of the past. Well, our past. It is important to remember that Queen Elizabeth II was formed by her experiences during World War II. That's why so many people, uh, what is it, the elders I know, still identify with her, with her generation. She was in her teens when she uh, put on a uniform and drove an ambulance. Right. Don't see Diana driving any war ambulances. Anyway, uh, Elizabeth worked as an auto mechanic in the army. Fascinating. I've seen the films. Uh, this was not play. This was the real thing. Uh, the family stayed in England and 40,000 British civilians died in the bombings during the London Blitz. Of course, uh, <laughs> yeah, the British bombed their share too. You remember Dresden and all the rest. Uh, nothing but losers in a war. Anyway, I had an in-law. Uh, she was a wonderful woman. She was a night warden during those days. It was a defining experience for her, for everyone involved. Uh, <laughs> she came here later, became a British nanny. Princess Elizabeth had only a few years after the war to enjoy marriage and children. She became queen in her 20s. I hear a lot of pundits these days saying, wouldn't it be nice if William and Kate could become king and queen and just skip over Charles and Camilla? Uh, there is some uh, some opinion that Camilla would be an inappropriate queen, but who is it uh, to say, who is to say whether or not that's a good idea? But, you know, skipping from Elizabeth II to William would seem to be practical, but it'll never happen. Gossip has it that Queen Elizabeth had a randy streak when she was a young woman. Uh, she had also an unfailing devotion to duty. As the years passed and uh, her husband Philip, you remember, the prince consort, uh, he took his fun where he found it and Liz, uh, Liz kind of gave up. She... She turned to her horsey pursuits. We've had all kinds of uh, books and plays, movies lately. Um, yes, the dogs and the horses seem to be her favorite people. She was still the queen. Perhaps Diana brought home to Elizabeth the limits of happiness within the married state of a royal. Anyway, for Diana, being a royal was not enough. She wanted to be real. As the queen of hearts, she could reign over what her brother called uh, her, quote, constituency of the rejected. Wow. Uh, she was loved by those who felt like outsiders. That interesting, since that is clearly the majority, she posed a real threat to the old order. Some people even thought she was democratic. Anyway, 
The father of Diana's lover, Mohammed Al-Fayed, uh, her lover was Dodi Al-Fayed, and uh, he was, of course, from the Middle East. Wow. Uh, he leased and restored the home of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor in Paris. Now, some say that he was preparing this home for his son and Diana. Uh, they stopped by to look at this house on their fatal last visit to Paris. And I can't help wondering whether or not they might have set up a court of their own right there in the heart of Europe. What you think? After all, you know, uh, yes, Dodie and his crowd were buying up England, Europe, still doing that. In the end, Diana's uh, death was her final gift to the monarchy. It's clear that rumors of the fall of the House of Windsor are premature. Uh, she gave them her life, she gave them her sons, and she gave them that vitality that some people call glamour. Yes, glamour is something casting a spell, glamour. When the pundits dismiss Diana Spencer because she was a member of the Glitterati, it is important to remember that trivia does mean literally the triple goddess. Trivia. To be trivialized is the fate of woman. The sadness felt by so many seems to arise from the fact that death came just at the moment of transmutation, just when she was emerging from the feminine mystique, throwing off her masochism, her narcissism, and becoming outer-directed and sure of herself. As a recovering romantic, Diana knew what women go through when they look for God in the form of a man. The cruelty of her fate is heightened because she did not die, as so many young idols do, in a flood of excess. Her self-destructive, reactive behaviors were under control. She was getting well. She was healing, as they say. She had found earthly sensuality, the kind that makes us forget all about those neurotic attachments that neither satisfy nor gratify our real desires. Diana was loved because, well, let's face it, she made all the human mistakes, and she made them in public. She was getting it right, finally, at last. She was, you know, doing the right thing. She was ready for Oprah. Thus, when she was crushed by a combination of alcohol, anxiety, and the automobile... Her status as a victim was enlarged to encompass all modernity. All those killed and maimed by technology, toxins, tension. I thought about, oh, Jane Emma's characters. Uh, Jane Austen. Jane Austen's Emma. You remember Emma. Uh... Jane Austen called her faultless in spite of all her faults. Now, that's because in an age when death of the heart is visible on every street corner, 
Diana had the guts to love. The psychiatric take was that the grief felt by millions of mourners expressed their own existential yearnings. The iconography was dismissed as more Latin American than British. Of course, some of us have noticed that wasp countries and wasp cultures are not what they were. <laughs> well, they never were uh, pure, but now they are not even simple. Even the House of Lords is under threat. The tragedy of mortality is always mitigated by the larger human comedy, you know, uh, <laughs> the, the dowdy dignity of the old guard. Well, it was restored by their awkward efforts to respond to all that popular feeling, you know, to get with it. Slowly, the royals will be forgiven. Yes, they were forgiven for their primate grandiosity and their stuffy superiority and their lack of spontaneity. Uh, uh, the movie The Queen did a nice job. Helen Mirren gave us a sympathetic Elizabeth II. Diana's sons will supply the vital human touch. It will be business as usual at the firm. Uh, <laughs> I thought the sons were really very charming, um, especially the scenes of them at their mom's funeral, I think. The only thing that struck a terrible note was um, Harry showing up at a costume party in Nazi regalia. Uh, somebody needs to keep keep an eye on that boy, the the younger son. He will he will provide comic relief. Some poets believe that uh, in life the only authentic sorrow is the failure to evolve to become a saint. Tina Brown writes that Diana reminded her of Celia Copplestone. That shallow socialite in T.S. Eliot's play, The Cocktail Party. You remember Celia, the character who was devastated by a love that isn't truly reciprocated. And she surprises everyone in the last act by going off to do humanitarian work in a desolate corner of Africa and becoming a kind of saint. Right, um... My own interpretation of that character is based on her recognition that the married man she imagines she loves is only a very ordinary creature who begins to look to her very much like a dried-up grasshopper. She comes to recognize that he is not what she is seeking. She is after bigger game. Only God will do. Her death is only incidental to her determination to exist fully. As I remember the play, I believe he went off and was crucified on an anthill. Uh, that'll show him. A saint is someone who has ceased to think of herself at all. Once a woman has stopped looking for love, she is free to look with love. Of course, it may be an illusion to believe that we go into the light. Few are chosen... I wonder if Mother Teresa got there, whatever you may think of Mother Teresa's politics. There's no question that she walked the walk. Uh, <coughs> she had what we call Christ consciousness. Many of us were quick to deify Diana, rushed to judgment some. Yes, I heard one opinion comparing her to Eva Perón while insisting that 
Eva Perón had the edge because she came from poverty and illegitimacy and had so much more to overcome on her way to the top. Is that thinking? <laughs> Finally, I think of Diana Spencer as Wendy in Peter Pan. She wanted to be Wendy to a world of lost boys. That's not accurate. Perception is always a prism and reality is like shot silk. Depends where the light hits. I guess our best thoughts are informed by our emotions. We do so desperately need to think well of ourselves. Genuine goodness is what we all seek. Let us hope that these children getting married on Friday have a, a dollop of that stuff. The theater never dies. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air next Tuesday at the same time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Tune in to Full Circle this Friday, April 29th on KPFA 94.1 FM. This week, we will be discussing health concerns within communities of color and focusing on such issues as cancer, asthma, diabetes, and obesity. Join us this Friday, April 29th at 7 p.m. on Full Circle, 94.1 FM on KPFA. Full Circle is produced by First Voice Media and members of the KPFA Apprenticeship Program.